ladies and gentlemen, listen, we are here. This is Not a Journalist with Brian Holiday, and I am talking with Dr. Justin Ross. Um, Dr. Ross has been a uh, family, a doctor of family medicine who has been helping, uh, I mean, I would say more than helping. The word helping feels like a small term in regards to being up north and 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 servicing servicing that community servicing a community that is underserved is what i would say for anyone who serves in the in northern quebec um and also working out of a hospital in brooklyn if i'm not if i'm correct so i'm actually when i'm here in new york i'm not actually working in the hospital here what i'm actually doing here in new york interestingly enough is i'm kind of like um, one of my friends uses this term, like, I'm kind of like the guy in the chair, uh, as one would say, like, in, uh, I think that's referenced in, like, in Spider-Man, uh, oh, the new yeah. Spider-Man with Tom Holland. Yes, I'm yes. kind of here, I'm like the, the guy in the chair for the north of Quebec for public health. Oh, like, when cool. I'm not here, when I'm not working on the front line of northern Quebec, when I'm here, I basically help that entire region deal with the uh, deal on a day-to-day basis with a pandemic and okay. i'm essentially on call like 24 7 uh fielding calls or dealing with like crises that occur uh from a public health standpoint yeah. for them um, because as i'm sure you as everyone sees you know this news and information is accelerating and changing every day so rapidly but unfortunately like in as much as a lot of this news and information uh, is inherently biased it is often inherently biased to uh places on earth that are you know not rural or yeah. not indigenous you know like they're geared towards big cities yeah. and thinking of how the pandemic impacts people who are let's say indigenous or in, in a very rural and isolated environment is completely different so it, it even if there's not a lot of people there there's still a lot of work um, to be done. So yeah, when I'm here I'm kind of like that to that guy in the chair like the Emilio Estevez in like Mission Impossible 1 Except I don't. Hopefully, I will not meet meet an untimely end. Well, uh, I'm I'm a geek, so if anything, the probably the most popular version of that guy in the chair is actually a woman in the chair, which is Barbara Gordon, uh, known as Oracle, after she's injured by the Joker. Uh, she's shot. Oh and, yes. Yeah, she's it's true. Yeah, yeah. That, or in the killing joke. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would say Oracle is probably the most known person in the chair. If I if I'm being fair to geeks i that's who i would think of when i think of person in the chair an unfortunate event awesome. as to why she ended up there but that is definitely a nod yeah. because she's one of the best that they've ever had uh hold the chair down i would say okay perfect so i'm gonna start referring to myself as that then I'll as be the like, oracle call me oracle, <laughs> call me oracle. <laughs> that is awesome <laughs> Uh, okay, so I mean, you and I—you've probably seen a whole bunch of my posts. I've been talking pretty regularly mm-hmm. about um, COVID in some way or form, uh, and I, I've been doing so with knowing full well that I am—I am not as informed as the average. Uh, I, I'm a little bit more informed than the average person in the sense that I come from a family, uh, a medical family. My mom works in nursing. My partner is a nurse. My father worked at the hospitals. Uh, there's a lot of doctors in my family. I've had regular conversations with people about uh, a lot of my friends that I used to work with when I used to work in the emergency here in Montreal. Uh, I worked as a registration clerk, uh, so I don't have a medical knowledge, but I do talk to a lot of people who are feeling the situation firsthand on the ground, boots on the uh, on the uh, on the ground. 
and we've you know it's just kind of the the general conversation has constantly been things are pretty bad people need to pay attention people need to listen um and I think, you know, even early on when I first started, I think the first week that things started happening, I was hosting my other podcast, Geektastic Cypher. And I said then that, you know, if if everyone follows everything and actually quarantines, we're looking at June, July. If people yeah. don't, we're going to be looking at the fall. And then and I yeah. said that I said that the like the second or third week of March. And people told me I was being negative and and uh, I was, you know, being alarmist. And I was trying to explain to them, no, I'm not. This is a pandemic. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, if you haven't been paying attention, the, the, the way this has been evolving and growing in different communities around the world um, indicates that it is easily transmittable that uh, and that, you know, places like Taiwan where they ha- you know, saw it from the jump and said, nah, we ain't playing with this, and immediately went into like face mask everywhere, mask everywhere, yeah. shields up everywhere, uh, you know, uh, d- you know, no interactions, uh, temperature checks everywhere, body checks, mm-hmm. uh, temperature checks as people walk into buildings, everything, everything, everything. Taiwan was just like, we got to do this right now, immediately. This is how we need to approach this thing. And then you have other countries that were more or less a fair and saw their numbers skyrocket in a way that yeah. probably scared a lot of people in those communities. And which I think if anything leads to the, the, and this is one of the things I wanted to talk to you about that fear and confusion leads to people assuming it's all a conspiracy because they yeah. can't grasp what's happening. Um, it's really important, you know. It's it's unfortunate that this is the way that science is being introduced to a lot of people. Oh my god! Um, because, like, you know, I think had this have occurred twenty years ago, we would have seen a lot more people having a lot more trust in what, like, our like what government, what public health officials were saying, and you know, social media and the time has really shined a spotlight on the fact that like critical thinking skills are greatly lacking in a lot of society, right? And and interpreting and understanding what our information is. And COVID is basically putting the scientific method like on a billboard with like a like a timer, like a, a running tracker, like they have like <laughs> at the bottom of let's say like CNN or MSNBC yeah. showing you real-time updates of all the things that people are doing that are failing yeah. nonstop, right? And and that's what science is, you know, like it's it took like decades like if you think like in the 70s like if you were having a heart attack you were basically put on bed rest given tylenol and put in the dark whoa like just to think like this is what it was you know like medicine has changed so much and we're seeing now an entire globe literally every scientist is devoting all of their resources and time and money to one problem yeah so we're getting like a deluge of information and the way that we can access information now is so much quicker than let's say going to a library like 20 30 years ago so you're being constantly fed this stuff and if you don't have the like kind of mindset of let's take a step back and really kind of reinterpret what the information that i'm digesting is i think it's just lends to like a lot of these people going off the deep end and down these rabbit holes 
levels of like you're saying like conspiracy theories mm-hmm. and whatnot but this is what science is like you try and try and try and you have to try things and if, if something works it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work all the time you yeah. have to make sure that it's replicable and replicable with the same people in the same environment and people hang their hat these days on like these miracle things like oh this worked or this worked or i saw this and i think a lot of people are aren't aren't cognizant of the weight that their words have yeah and the power that their words have especially you know like our leaders like if someone touts like a miracle drug as being a miracle drug you know it helps if you have the data to back that up and the problem is when you have someone like like dr fauci who like has that data uh, a lot of people tend to turn that off because look, reading data and properly analyzing a study can be boring. Oh, like I'll say uh, that's yeah. like one of my least favorite things to do in medical school. I would tune out a lot on all these things because it's very busy work and it's not that stimulating. And if you give that to someone who has like zero knowledge of scientific literature, yeah, it's going to go in one year and out the other. You're going to take like the snake oil salesman. Yeah at their first word because you know it's it's comforting it's easier to see and the fact is like medicine on the whole is an imperfect science Mm -hmm. and i think we put a lot of trust in like absolutes like oh well i have um i'm taking let's say like lipitor like a cholesterol medication that means i'm never going to have a heart attack Mm. um you know like a lot of what we do in medicine is imperfect and not understood properly like to go back to the cholesterol example Mm -hmm. like uh most almost everyone you know over the age of 50 like let's say in the states like takes like this drug called Lipitor Mm -hmm. which is like a a global phenomena uh like the Walt Disney world of of drugs (laughs) it's a multi-billion dollar industry yeah and in medicine we have two types of things like that we give for treatment we have primary prevention which is preventing a first event from happening mm-hmm. um preventing something from ever occurring and secondary prevention which is preventing something from reoccurring so to give an example of a cholesterol medication for secondary prevention which is let's say let's say i have a heart attack or i have a stroke and um i'm gonna be given this medication to prevent a future one from happening there's a lot of proof a lot of studies a lot of evidence that shows that this makes a lot of sense that you're going to be having better survival chances, lower risk of having a stroke or repeated heart attack for being on that medication. Makes a lot of sense. You should be on that drug. Mm-hmm. For someone, let's say, who has never had it before, you know, there's a lot of like conflicting evidence um, in terms of if this is good or if this is not. Um, but the thing with Liptor is it has a great, like great marketing. Uh, it's doesn't have really any side effects. It's quite, like it has minimal side effects, I mm-hmm. should say. Um, it's quite safe. So for that reason, a lot of people offer to their patients, a lot of people take it. But truthfully, at the heart of the matter, like when I sit down with a patient and I talk to them about like, hey, are we going to start a medication for your cholesterol or not? I'm very transparent and saying, look, like for this purpose, you, someone who is otherwise healthy, but just has high cholesterol, mm-hmm. this may not be the most useful tool for you. And I think that, um, you know, as we move through, like more and more to the future where things are quick and rapid access, we want stuff to be quick. People aren't really taking the time to sit down and take that second to really like tease out what these things mean. And that's just an example of like how I think a lot of people just don't know enough about health, enough about yeah. medicine. And COVID is like possibly the most stressful, anxiety provoking way to learn about uh, to learn about medical science. Yeah. So well- people will be, you know, like diving into these 
like it's kind of like the wild west out there well you I, have these snake oil salesmen who i was just gonna like, say, oh yeah they bat onto that you know i was gonna say i i believe that um this is I, I, for a lot of people like you said this is probably the first time that they've ever had to deal with anything on this scale uh, when we had SARS breakout a couple years ago, when we had Ebola breakout a couple years ago, uh, mm-hmm. those breakouts, quote unquote, were not as on a grand scale. And in some cases weren't, uh, I, I think in both cases, I don't think you could con- consider them global. They were very much isolated to specific areas in the world. And, yeah. and you know, everyone else in the world was just like, well, sucks to be there right now, but good luck. Exactly. And, uh, and they just went about their business. And I, I think the fact that COVID is one of, is in my lifetime, I'm and I'm just trying to think back. But yeah, in my lifetime is the first time I've ever seen a global spread of something. Um, I mean, I I can't really talk about AIDS because I was born in '83, and I think it was just. Mm-hmm. I know that people were panicking at that time. I was, however, just born. I don't know anything. It's all just stories. By the you know late '80s, when I was a kid, you definitely heard people talking about it. It was, you know, it, there were movies coming out. You know, uh, Philadelphia, I think, is one of them with Tom Hanks. Like mm-hmm. the yeah. the conversations about it were being had, but as a child, I didn't understand. So for me now, as an adult, seeing a global reaction and, you know, the combination though, the thing that also is, you know, gift and curse, the internet has been this wonderful gift to us in some ways, but it's probably one of the worst things we could have right now with uh, misinformation, the transfer of misinformation. Uh, you know, 100%. Yeah. How often do you hear people make jokes about WebMD? Uh, you know, you have a cough, <laughs> you have cancer, uh, you farted too hard, you have cancer. Like, you know, like any, every, you look up any type of, uh, of issue that you might be having or any uh, self-diagnosed things that you might type in. And it's always like, this is potentially uh, this illness, which is also. For sure. Yeah. So, uh, I mean. <laughs> I think I understand. Uh, and, and that's the thing. That's one of the reasons when I have these conversations with a lot of people, I do genuinely understand the fear. Uh, I'm not going to pretend like I wasn't scared. I definitely started this situation off thinking that, you know, if we all wash our hands and keep distance from each other, this will pass and we will be okay. I now know that that obviously wasn't as simple, you know, um, yeah. from one, per- you know, when you find out that one person's infected, and that they possibly were asymptomatic for up to 14 days, uh, you know, on a regular day, how many people does one person brush against, pass by, breathe near, for sure. interact with? Um, so I think that's once that finally hit me in March, where I think I think I went to work one day because uh, I had a meeting. And then I wasn't going to, I wasn't planning to go to work on Monday and then they canceled the meeting and I was just like, cool, I'm going home. And I left in the middle of the day because I was just like, I have a better chance of getting home and interacting with less people if I'm leaving in the middle of the day because everyone else is still at work on a Friday. Mm-hmm. And, exactly. And that, that's to me, you know, I like, I'm a person who likes to live in facts. I started to, to live in like fear a little bit and that, so I understand. Um, I think one of the first things. Uh, the, this conversation that we're having, disclaimer, we are not here to um, 
I mean, you are a medical professional, so you can address certain things. <laughs> I, however, sure. will make sure to explain to people I'm not a medical professional. I will ask questions. We will have discussions. Um, Justin, I'm in no way asking you to be the voice of uh, medicine in the United States. And yeah, I hope people no, understand. I'm just saying that because, you know, I, a lot of people. You need to say it. You yeah. Need to have that disclaimer, right? And be, I think that yeah. um, all that you can say is, I think from my point of view is, by no means am I an expert mm. in this. I am someone who has for, been fortunate enough to work just on both sides of being on a front line, as well as dealing specifically only with public health. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting you were mentioning to where you were kind of like at the beginning of this. And I feel like that's becoming more and more a topic of discussion amongst people is where were you when like you yeah. really felt like things had changed. Yeah. And I was actually leaving the North and when I have to leave the north of Quebec, it's usually like a two-day travel situation. Um, in some instances, I'm able to fly to Montreal and then catch a flight to New York that same night. Okay. can be very risky if there's like weather issues, let's say like wind or fog in the winter. Obviously, it's it's very, very chancy. But in this case, it, the stars aligned that I was going to be able to get like leave the north in the morning, get home to Brooklyn at night, which, which happens only a couple times a year. So mm -hmm. I was very excited. However things started to really develop at that point where you're seeing, I think this is the yeah, mid-March where I was thinking to myself, okay, I'm going to be off because way, the way I work is I'll work, let's say three or four weeks straight every day up North. And then I'll take like two to three weeks off. Okay. So I was going on a, a, a time off and I was going to fly to New York in my mind. I was thinking, you know, I don't know if I really want to be on a plane right now right? Yeah. as all this is happening. And also God forbid that things are going to be shutting down. Yeah. I want to have my car in New York City in the event that I can't, that I have to get out or go somewhere. Yeah. Who knows what's going to happen? So I no showed my flight uh, from Montreal to New York. I just got in my car and I drove straight. I got here at like 1130 at night. Hmm. But not more than two days later, they closed the borders. Yeah. Um, and then I was just like, oh, thankfully I did this. Yeah. Like I had the wherewithal to say like, you know what? Maybe just having the car was useful. And having the car here. So my wife is a, is a social worker at Mount Sinai hmm. here in New York City. So she works in uh, palliative care and uh, oncology. So that's, let's mm, say, end of life yeah. care and yeah. with cancer patients in Manhattan. And immediately when I was here with my car, I said, look, like, how can we adapt to this new situation? People are kind of freaking out, raiding grocery stores and this and whatnot. And we, I would just drive her to work and pick her up from work every day. And driving in like New York, like from Brooklyn to Manhattan twice a day <laughs> is not something I yeah. ever would wish on anybody <laughs> yeah, normally. Yeah. yeah. However, this became like kind of like the beginning of my pandemic experience. Yeah. And it was almost surreal driving through a deserted, manhattan you kind of oh. feel like you're like you're on like a like gta 4 yeah uh and no one's like spawned into, into your <laughs> multiplayer yeah. yet so you're just cruising and like going down the fdr like at like 100 kilometers an hour and there's nobody there uh. so it was, it was kind of like a i am legend type scenario can i but that's sort of like the beginning of where i was at and it was very scary yeah can know? i ask you a, real, um, a quick question yeah, sure. How early on? Because you work in a medical field, so you probably noticed yeah. things sooner. Because for a lot of people, I think the the turning point was in in the states. The NBA shut down. Tom Hanks got sick. 
in mm-hmm. Canada, uh, the NHL shut down, which I think was the same mm-hmm. day, and Tom Hanks got sick. Tom Hanks was kind of the, the for, for a lot of North sure. Americans, Tom Hanks being in Australia and saying, I have COVID, and everyone being like, wait, yeah. what? celebrities can get this uh that was pretty serious for people um in your case though having working in the medical field at what point did you at what point did you think okay this looks more serious than i think the public understands so i that's a very good question because at the beginning honestly i was kind of dismissive like Mm -hmm. i was not uh and that's a fault of my own. I was thinking like, look, this is clearly no different than influenza. Mm. Um, I had seen like the, the the stories out of Wuhan. I had seen the videos from like the intensivist that I passed away. I thought this is horrible, but I just didn't see enough data that really convinced yeah. me of how enormous this was gonna get. The biggest thing that I saw for me that was that um, I was thinking to myself, what, how would this touch my patients that I take care of in rural isolated Northern Quebec? Mm-hmm. And not like hours later, there was a scare because of a a mining conference that occurred in Ontario and a ton of members from like indigenous populations from all over North America were there, including Mm -hmm. like, I believe our prime minister was there. I'm pretty sure Trudeau was there too. And, and you saw like that there had been something like, I think there was 10 cases linked to this conference. And then we were starting to have conversations with people who had come back from this event and asking them questions about like what their exposure risk could be. That really made it real to me because you think, you know, everyone thinks they're invincible. Like you were talking about like Ebola, like what, well, what point were you really worried that Ebola is going to come knock on your door in your day-to-day life in Montreal? It's, 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 it's infrequent unless you choose to put yourself in that situation. And, the luxury of being, let's say, in a rural and isolated environment is that you are rural and you are isolated. Yeah. You think that this, the chance of this coming to you is so low. And this really opened my eyes and I just started to go down this. My rabbit hole was what would this do to people who are in an isolated place who, let's say, have been victims of systemic racism for centuries and as such have like a lower the social determinants of health, yeah. less infrastructure, less money, and more chronic disease. And I just started to have like these these, these like nightmares um, of what this would do to the indigenous population in Canada. And then that's when it really hit me. It's like, okay, this this can touch anyone yeah. so quickly. And that's that was I think a day before I left the north. And then when I got back to New York, like uh, all this had happened with Tom Hanks and then the grocery stores are being raided and you quickly get very exponentially escalated Yes, yes. in terms of how, how anxious the populace was. Yeah. So that was, I think kind of the point when I was like, all right, this, this is, no one is untouchable here. Yeah. Um, and if this can come to my tiny town this early, then this needs to really be taken seriously. And then I was, that was a big wake up call for me. Did you ever have conversations with people trying to explain the exponential growth of the virus, the the spread? Because that was one of the things that I had. I had conversations with friends early on, and you know, my friends were just like, "Oh, there's ten cases," and I and I was trying to explain to them, "Yeah," and they're like, "Oh, the numbers are climbing." I'm like, "Yeah, guys, if there's ten today, there's a hundred tomorrow." Like. This isn't going to be 10, 11, 12. It's not a one person. It's not like we're playing tag and the person just yeah. taps one person. It's 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 widespread in the sense that for one person, again, one of the things I was trying to sh- explain to people 
if you're one person, just think about your routine on a Monday from home to work and then from work to home. Mm-hmm. And then think of doing that for 14 days without knowing that yeah. you may potentially have this. Um, so, you know, on your end, I mean, you obviously, like you were saying, more isolated situation. Were there conversations about that with people? Was there a fear that in a small community that exponential growth was also very dangerous because of the size? Um, so I would say definitely for like, and I think that this comes to like a bigger question that, um, you know, we, we were like texting earlier and like I had mm-hmm. uh, briefly mentioned, we want to save it for this, like the concept of geography yeah. and how geography is a huge strength to a lot of places on the planet. Like we mentioned Taiwan, yeah. Taiwan, Iceland, New Zealand, like the Maritimes of Canada. It's very helpful where you have only one or two ways to get into a place because it's very easy to control people coming and going and keeping mm-hmm. track of where they're going. And I'm not saying you have to do this in a draconian way. It's just, it is a lot easier to keep track of whereabouts and how an infection could enter into your community if there's less ways into it. So in the community I work in, there's only one, there's seemingly only one or two ways in uh, by road. So for that reason, it was quite easy to get a sense of where people were going and when they were leaving. And the local like uh, indigenous governments create like they're able to create their own laws that supersede let's say like federal provincial law Um, and they were quite strict in terms of let's say like mandating self-isolation if you left the community and returned like Mm -hmm. you would have to quarantine symptoms or not if ever you left the community um which was quite like which was a quite conservative approach Mm -hmm. but in the end it ended up being like an amazing approach because there's very there was very minimal cases happening there but for sure what we're worried about is a lot of these places where people come in and out, you know, I'm an example of that. Mm. I go to this rural location from an urban environment. Um, and most people do that. I'm not allowed to own, let's say land as a non-indigenous person in an indigenous community. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, and let's say my, my partner can't speak French very well. So she can't get licensed as a social worker in our province. So mm-hmm. she couldn't work there. So like there's, it's a place of work, not necessarily a place to live yeah. if you're not a member of the community. So there's a lot of transient workers in these northern areas. And for sure, this would put these people at risk, people coming and going. And as such, they've had to start setting up these rules that are quite strict to ensure that people don't import the virus. Yeah. Um, because what we were most concerned about in these areas, which is what we're seeing in any other city, like let's be it the Bronx or in Hushalaga Maisonneuve. Yeah. In locations where you have crowded housing, where you have individuals who are primarily frontline workers because they don't have a choice, they can't not work. They can't not, they aren't able to work from home. This is no different, let's say in an indigenous community where you would see a lot of these variables being present and you would see this run roughshod through them. We see this in the States, in the Southwestern indigenous communities which are some of the largest like populated uh, like the Navajo nation in like uh, in Arizona and New Mexico. These are enormous communities, like they're, they're cities essentially. And they're not as easy to, let's say, manage in like um, in, incoming in and flux, outgoing yeah. traffic yeah. of people. Right. So for that reason, they were hit quite hard and they have some of the highest mortality rates of anyone hospitalized in North America. Um, so for sure that was on our minds. We were thinking, what can we do to prevent this from, from getting here? 
And it required a lot of really strict protocols in place. Like myself, you know, the moment I go back to Canada, I have to do like a federal mandated 14 day quarantine. Yeah. Like I'm allowed to travel across the border because I'm a, an essential uh, worker yeah. offering medical care to, a, like, as you mentioned, an underserved population. But let's say if I lived in Montreal and I was going to go work up there, even my going from Montreal, I would be required to, let's say, either quarantine on arrival or I'd have to quarantine prior to going. Mm -hmm. And the way that I traveled would, would dictate what type of quarantine I would do, whether I drove and I was alone in my car or whether I flew on a plane with other people. So they were very, very strict, um, much like how Quebec was in general with interregional travel, yeah. um, which was, like you know, the SQ being setting up roadblocks for between regions. Yeah, I didn't um, even know yeah. about that at one point. People were telling yeah. me, like, you can't leave the, the city. And I was just no. like, what are you guys talking about? They're just like, do you not realize how bad things are? And I was just like, no, I have no clue. Because I when the quarantine first started, I genuinely did not leave my because I had just moved into a new place. Okay. Um, my partner and I were like, we we're still living in boxes by the time I had to, you know, we were told work from home. Mm -hmm. So I was home and, you know, I, I figured I was just like, well, I guess I'm just going to start unpacking stuff and working from home in the day and whatever. And next thing I knew, I, you know, I went, I went for groceries for the first time with a mask and like, you know, I was like wearing gloves and like, you know, really yeah. protecting myself. Cause I was just like, I don't want to be touching anything. I don't want to breathe anything. And then, you know, I'm hearing stories that they're like, you can't cross. Uh, I think one of my friend's moms tried to go into New Brunswick to go nope. visit family. They were like, yeah. you can't even, we don't even want you leaving the island right now, let alone leaving the province. What are you doing? And yes, yeah. I, I, and I, 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 how do we explain to people why that is necessary when throughout their entire lives, they've had the right to do anything and everything? What I think, I think like a good analogy is, um, at least at the beginning of the pandemic. Now it may change a bit, but at the beginning of the pandemic, the analogy I would use is you're going to the grocery store now. You're seeing the shelves are empty. Hmm. You're like, you want to buy flour to bake. You can't because everyone is baking. Yeah. There's enough flour to go around. It's just we are too many people are going at once. Yeah. And this is what the virus does. It is the the thing that makes it so dangerous, aside from the fact that, like you're mentioning, you know, the fact that you can be infectious without having symptoms or before you develop symptoms. Yeah. The fact that there's a huge wide range of symptoms that people can have. Oh my God. Yeah. Between from just not being able to smell to having diarrhea, you know, to having the classic like shortness of breath, fever and cough. The spectrum is enormous. And we started to learn more and more as it began to kind of unfold. Yeah. Um, and the fact that this lasts for quite some time, you could be infectious for a great amount of time without even knowing it. Uh, all this together leads to a situation where, as you mentioned earlier, you know, it's not playing tag. You're not just going to touch one person. Mm. Um, we use this term called the, the R not, um, which is, I think it's been like mentioned throughout on blogs and, and in the news over the course of the past couple of months, but essentially what it implies is the infectivity of a pathogen um, to a population, let's say that's susceptible to it. Now, um, some of these, num like some pathogens are, are very, very high. It's like measles, I think is like every, there are not for measles is 16. So like one person will infect 16 people oh, yes. uh, who are susceptible seen... to measles. If yes. you have measles as yeah. an example. Yeah. Uh, Chickenpox similarly is quite, is quite high. It's like, four, it's, I think 12 or 14. I'm, like, these numbers I'm just uh, estimating, but mm -hmm. it is very high. Um, 
And like something like the common cold or influenza, I believe is like one, one to two. But the problem with this is that COVID is about two to six, which is quite high um, for something that, you know, is that everyone is, you know, has not been exposed to because it is a novel virus. So you're touching a lot of people without knowing it. And even let's say if a hundred people get it, like, and let's say you were going with like a, a 10% hospitalization rate, that's 10 people. Yeah. And if let's say that 10% needed ICU care, that's 10 ICU beds. Oh. And, and I used to have work, a lot yeah. of room. I used to work in bed management. So I know I was the guy that, yeah, yeah. I was the guy that used to help the head nurse uh, manage to figure out how many ICU beds we had and yeah. how, like who can go home because we need to always have at least exactly. one or two on the weekend open, yeah. open, always, always, always. So, yeah. So just like a grocery store, you know, like there's enough flour to go, go around. And like the thing with COVID is if people were getting sequentially ill, then we'd probably be able to deal with it because, mm. but the problem is it overwhelms the healthcare systems. Oh, and then your ER is slammed and then your ICU is slammed. And not only are you at risk of dying from COVID, but let's say you have a heart attack or you're in a car accident. The ambulance is going to take longer to come get you yeah. because it's getting somebody else who is sick right now. It overwhelms uh, the system, the infrastructure that we have in place. And that's what's so, so dangerous. Like we haven't even begun to touch upon the collateral damage that this has caused for other types of pathology. Yeah. Like let's say be it traumas, be it substance abuse be it mental health like we don't know enough about that yet yeah but uh it'll be interesting in the coming years to see really like how not only from like a covid perspective how overwhelmed our hospitals and clinics were but how everything else took a back seat yeah to this you oh, know yeah. and that's the biggest problem yeah I, I as as someone who worked in the er and i worked in the admitting office i was there um you know I, i've been there where it's like Oh, these two doctors, like someone made a mistake and these two doctors are not here at this hospital yeah. right now. And that, okay, so, oh, well, that that's like these 10 surgeries now being pushed back. Yeah. It's just like, what? 10 surgeries because those two aren't here because someone made a scheduling mistake? Yeah, that's that's what happened. So when you think about the fact that like COVID had people quarantining, um, you know, uh, you, you, and then on top of that, not even just quarantine, but you had some medical staff, um, frontline people who did get sick and then could yeah. not be there. So then they yep. couldn't perform surgeries because there was understaffed in the, in the operating rooms. Like these are all things that I've heard, like operating rooms were understaffed, uh, ERs were understaffed. And then, and then like you're saying that leads to burnout for the other people who are now trying to help pick up the slack working doubles. So then those people go on burnout while the other people have finally come back, hopefully fingers crossed, because one of the crazy things that I'm hearing now is some people who've gotten COVID who recover still test positive. In one case, someone was still testing positive up to three months after they, they had recovered from COVID. So this is, you know, the, a big problem, like for the pandemic period is just the way that, like the test itself. Okay. okay. So um, as an example, that, that, that case you just described, this person is still testing positive three months later. Yeah. But that is obviously like an extreme situation. Of course, yeah. The, 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 the bulk of people, you know, they, they, they're sick and then they get better and then they, they do test negative. Um, but some individuals will have instances where they'll 
they'll test negative, test positive, test negative again, mm. and um, or test positive months later. Now, to speak to the instance where the person tested positive months later, just because they tested positive doesn't mean they're still contagious or that okay. they still have like an infectious virus. Okay. The tests can pick up, let's say, like shedding of the virus or dead virus um, oh. in saliva, in stool, um, months, sometimes months later. Uh, like that is not okay. an infectious virus. Um, they were doing a lot of tests, let's say at the beginning where they were talking about like, oh, transmission from surfaces or in ventilation ducts. Like um, there was some study, I think, in, in China where they were saying we found the presence of COVID RNA in the ventilation duct hours after this procedure was done. Yeah. However, let's say like they then showed that that RNA was was dead. It was wasn't an infectious okay. pathogen. Okay. Um, so the fact that that guy tested positive three months later doesn't necessarily mean that he was infectious. Okay. Um, and that comes back to the, the issue with the test. So th this is the other problem. Um, you know, we're testing as much as we can. At the beginning, we were not testing enough. Yeah, you know, you yeah. were saying there were only 10 cases. Um, in order to really get a sense of where you're at, to have a bird's eye view of the pandemic, you need to be testing as much as humanly possible so you can identify who has it, so you can isolate them. Yeah. And everybody at the beginning was screwed. Like yeah. nobody yeah. had a testing infrastructure in place that was good enough, at least in North America. Yeah. Um, you know, like New York uh, in April and in March was having like 50% positive rates of testing, which is is insane. Um, and that was in the high thousands, like yeah. something like 8,000 you know, positive, and that's 50% of the 16,000 tests that were done that Jesus. day, which means that there's a lot more yeah. that are out there. That's only what you can see. So enabling a uh, population to test a lot really gives you a bird's eye view of what's happening. Um, so we want to target certain amounts of positivity in our tests. Ideally, the WHO will states that you want a positivity rate of 2 to 5%. Yeah. Um, For those now, who the World Health Organization, by the way, but yeah, sorry. Yes, for up two to five percent. Now, what does that mean? That is like a rate that we feel is acceptable to mitigate risk of transmission. Mm. Um, is that going to bring numbers down to zero? No, that's not. That's not a goal for that. That's the goal to have society continue with some semblance of normalcy while still maintaining restrictions. Um, now, at the beginning, I would say most of North America was testing a lot higher than that. Mm. Now, we fortunately find ourselves in a place where a lot of us are testing like below that that goal, let's say like uh, New York State today, for example, test uh, tested at 0.94 percent. Oh, okay. so and I believe they tested like I can actually bring up the number right here, um, something almost like sixty thousand. Let me see. Yeah, okay. So yesterday, so the tests are the, the test results come day in for, one day later. Yeah, that's right. So uh, we yesterday tested fifty-seven thousand people, and they had five hundred around five hundred positive. So at a oh. rate of 0.94 percent. Which is amazing. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So that's giving you a sense that right now you feel pretty comfortable here being in New York State because you have a good sense of what the bird's eye view is of the state. Mm -hmm. Now, the only problem with the test um, with regards to how it operates, we we're talking about this person three months later being yeah. positive, but maybe not having it. Even at baseline, no test is perfect. Of course. All right. And this is something else that I think that people that we just have never been taught if you weren't in medicine or you weren't in science. Mm. Like if you do an x-ray, let's say and you're coughing, and you have a fever and you're coughing up green gunk and your x-ray is said to be normal. 
Does that necessarily mean that you don't have a pneumonia? Not necessarily. Yeah. An x-ray is not a perfect test. Similarly to like a pregnancy test. Some people can have a false positive, like, yeah. oh, I'm pregnant, but they really aren't, or a false negative. So the COVID test um, is not a perfect test by any means and is not even a great test. So whenever we develop a test, there are two key um, points to how that test operates. We have sensitivity and specificity. Now, sensitivity implies uh, how many, like let's say if you're talking about, I use fishing as an analogy here. Mm -hmm. um, the sensitivity of a test implies to the different types of fish it can catch with a, with a very big net. So ideally you want a test that's very, very sensitive, that it'll pick up a lot of stuff and not just one specific thing. You want it to be extremely sensitive. Um, specificity, specificity rather, is a type of net that would catch, let's say one specific type of fish. Yeah. So not only are you picking up a lot, but it's very good at picking up, let's say, like uh, a manta ray. This is a manta ray specific net, but it will catch a lot of other stuff at the same time. Um, and ideally, you want really high values for both of these. And when I say values, I mean percentages. Mm -hmm. So um, the COVID test is, is quite specific, um, but its sensitivity is really only like some, some studies will say as low as 70%. Some mm. will say as good as 80%, okay. which is not great. Yeah. Like you're getting a test that even let's say if it's Four negative, out of five. could mean that, you know, you could have a 30% chance that it could just be like, it could be positive. It's not good at picking up oh. a lot of other things. So okay. the chance of you being positive, if it is positive, is, is typically quite good, given that the specificity of the test is good. It is very good at detecting someone who has it. Mm -hmm. But so much to the point that, like we see, we're detecting people who may not have an infectious virus um, and you can be getting false negatives, okay. which is a problem. So even let's say if let's say you test negative, does that mean that you don't have it? Not necessarily, especially if you're not symptomatic, yeah. because people who aren't symptomatic aren't producing as much virus in their body and is making it less likely that you'll test positive but you could still be infectious yeah so for that reason like just if someone tells me oh it's just negative i'm fine i can go out and do whatever it's like not really like if you were let's say exposed to somebody who had it and you knew that they had it and you tested negative typically what we're like in, in let's say isolated environments like the community i'm in we still mandate those community members to have to do an isolation of 14 days yeah, and monitor just, their symptoms, yeah, you know? Just to be safe. So like a single, exactly, to be safe. So a single test doesn't get you out of, like it's not a get a jail free card, which mm -hmm. is a thing that I think people don't understand is that we're not operating at a high level of detecting the virus with the testing that we have. And this is this is global, yeah. you know, like it's just, we, we just don't have a good test for it yet. And that's the big problem. And then, If you had a really reliable test mm -hmm. and you could test people often, and get results back quickly, yeah. you'd be really be able to get a handle on this. But you're seeing places, let's say like, like in Texas and Florida, where they're delaying results for like seven days. Yeah. And those people who do a test think, oh, I'll just get my results. Let's see if they're continuing to walk around or being in contact with people, a lot can happen in that time period, you know? So well then that, that makes be, me that makes me ask this question then, and uh, and I think it's a fair one. Why was it not mandated for people to wear masks? immediately from the jump if they knew at the very least that based on the test you know like like you're saying it's just like okay the test is not 100% foolproof that's fine let's just at least tell people everyone wear a mask while we're doing these the testing just to be on the safe side 
So again, like it, it's very difficult in these type of situations because like I was saying at the beginning, we're shining a spotlight on the scientific method. Yeah. And I think, you know, you, you shared that video with me earlier of the people in Washington talking oh, yeah. about crazy nonsense. Dr. And, man. and uh, uh, actually, I'm not even going to say their name. <laughs> I'm not going to say their name. But I, I, no, no. I, I, but I was, I was so mad when I saw that this morning. I oh, was genuinely exactly. upset because uh, I, I, just to quickly explain to people, there's a doctor who has stated that they've cured 350 people with a miracle drug uh, that has been toted by other people so far. And that the and then at one point they say, why are we even talking about mask when we have a cure? And that yeah. made me really, really upset because any medical professional I've ever spoken to would say, well, you it, it's better to protect yourself, even if there is a cure, because why get the disease and then try and get the cure when you don't know how the cure will react to you? You don't know if you're allergic to why just why not just try not to catch it and, and and you know the the quickest analogy i was telling people was by that logic you know why wear condoms when we have the cures for a lot of stis a lot of sexually transmitted infections can be cured so why would you need to wear a condom and and, and to a, uh, unfortunately be a slightly more crass you know there's abortion so why wear a condom if someone gets pregnant you can like you know what i mean like that kind of logic is insane to me for sure. So I, I, I think that the condom analogy is, is a very, is a very good analogy um, to speak to the, the madness that occurred in that video. Um, you know, you're saying no healthcare worker would say something like that. And I think, unfortunately, a patient wants to hear something that is straightforward and is yes or, and is a yes or no, a binary type of situation. Yeah. Um, but like, like where I'm talking about here with you, like a, nothing in medicine is black and white. We still are learning every day how to deal with common things that we deal with all the time. We haven't found the cure for the common cold I, yeah, uh, after I centuries that. of this. Why would we have the cure for COVID? And I think, like to quote, like I'm drinking out of my Star Wars uh, cup right now, but like <laughs> only a Sith deals in absolutes, yes. and only a only a crazy or a unreliable healthcare professional yeah. will do the same. And like to to they're they're dealing in a lot of absolutes right there. And I think it's important to recognize again where information is coming from yeah and what it means and who's giving it to you and what their what their agenda is and i think the mask issue it was extremely controversial look like there was physicians and scientists that touted very strongly this should be instituted there was others who were very much against it like credible great docs great scientists and researchers who were not for masks simply because they said they wanted more evidence they wanted more proof that this would prevent it yeah um and i understand um like it that is what you're you've been taught from the beginning of your training to institute a policy change to institute a change in care um you should have evidence behind it and it was very difficult to for people to have enough evidence to hang their hat on that mass would make sense for them yeah then you had the other group of people the camp who are saying, look, this is a very, like, there's very little harm incurred by wearing this type of protective material. Um, why not just implement it? Yeah. That was the other camp. And yeah. then there was kind of like a third camp, like the political camp, who were concerned about supply. And they were concerned that, huh. let's say, if they made a mask 
uh, mandatory masking that this would reduce the the PPE supply for healthcare and frontline workers. Mm. Um, all that being said, like again, this is my my expert opinion. I'm not yeah. speaking for anybody else, but I think the main thing that we don't think about with masks enough is this concept of of source control. Now, what does that mean? Um, if enough people are wearing masks, and this is blocking actual like, production of droplet production of of aerosol or whatever, yeah. um, if you're blocking out the source, then in in general, there's less of this stuff going around for you to walk into mm-hmm. or to breathe in. So, a mandatory masking protocol, which is uh, has now been made uh, in place for indoor places in Quebec, mm-hmm. um, makes perfect sense to me because of that. You know, it's it's you're not causing really much harm <laughs> by doing this intervention, and I think it was unfortunately a. a there are multiple factors contributing to it being delayed. Yeah. And a big one for sure, just sociopolitically. Like if you look at um, North America, uh, we are currently both on both, certainly more on state side in uh, a very divisive situation yeah. from a sociopolitical perspective, um, as opposed to let's say like Taiwan, New Zealand, uh, Iceland, places where people have tremendous trust in their elected officials mm. and in um their public health departments simply stating they're going to mandate masking they knew it would be met let's say with little controversy yeah. or less controversy than here yeah so i'm sure that was a weighted uh, that was part of the weighted decision there as well um you know quebec was a little late to the party on that however that quebec was very keen on setting up roadblocks between interregional travel True. like new york New York doesn't do that. The rest, most of the states does not do this. And yeah. Quebec did, which is, that is probably one of the more stricter things that has happened in terms of limiting movement. Um, so it's, it's going to be that... a fine, like, I don't think we're really going to know the, the, who did the best job until like 10, 15 years. But all that being said right now, I think that it's hard to argue against wearing a mask. Yeah. I wear a mask. We wear it with all our patients that we're in the community. Um, it is kind of standard care. At this point, and uh, that's—I yeah. think it's hard to argue with that. I—I I, well, something that you just fell into that I that I think is very interesting is, and I, I kind of mentioned it before, because I didn't even know that there were blockades. I didn't care that there were blockades. Yes, exactly. And, and I think the when it comes to the mask, I think one of the other things is, I think because people are now, and I, you know. The thing I find hard about this situation is when I was 12, I thought this way, but now as an adult, I would hope I wouldn't. When I'm told I have to do something is usually when I didn't want to do it when I was a For kid. Sure. You know, my mom put me in the Air Cadets. I didn't want to be in the Air Cadets, even though the Air Cadets was tons of fun. You could learn to fly. You had great activities. You made great friends. There was no reason for a 13-year-old Brian to not actually like the Air Cadets in the structure. Yeah. There was a weird uniform, and I had to make polished boots. So what? On Once a week, I got to hang out with a bunch of kids, make airplanes, and talk about war not that I care much for war, but I got to talk about it in a way that weirdly enough was ma- making it sound cool for kids. But that's a whole other conversation. But all that to say, <laughs> <laughs> all that to say is as a child, I probably should have enjoyed that experience. But because I was forced to be there, it for automatically sure. became something I didn't want to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's 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 funny because like here in New York, at least for like the past couple of months, like we had our governor uh Cuomo, yeah. who would do these like daily briefings that kind of be- have become like very like 
essentially a meme and yes. he's developed this like big cult following oh yeah man. they talk about the boyfriend um, like even i've heard about the boyfriend. the boyfriend yeah the boyfriend he's a queen's like there's like a, a bingo for cuomo like queen's boy <laughs> new york top like all these things that he'll say um but one in one you know in one instance he did say something to someone asking a question about uh i don't even think it was about masks i think it was about something else but he said you you need to get behind the concept of we yeah and the concept of we is something that is foreign to you and you need to start unlocking that part of your brain and it's mm. unfortunate that you know we all kind of live as much as social media has connected us it has also isolated us a lot yeah you know and like you you you, you don't necessarily aren't it's easier to cocoon and be comfortable in being with people that you know and share values with as opposed let's say people who are in your community and they may not be the same you know, and I think that that's led to a lot of problems and uh, we just don't have this sense of community. And I, it was interesting here in New York. One thing that I did notice is that at all times, you know, it might from living here versus in Montreal, I've always felt a tremendous sense of like pride and respect in the community and people. And they would give that to me, too. Mm -hmm. Like, um I once was mugged in Montreal, leaving the children's hospital. Oh no! And uh, old children's a or number new children's? Years ago. Old children's. Oh, okay. So yeah. like on At on Atwater. Yeah, yeah. questionable neighborhood, uh, but, but that's fair. Questionable, but I was on St. Catherine Street, like in oh. front of the a the AMC. So like by no means a oh. deserted area. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very well and lit keep, and stuff. Yeah, well lit. Like um, I keep going back to this like analogy is that there people were walking by. There was a cab that was parked there. No one did anything, and oh, I was damn. clearly like having a problem if that happened in new york you can bet that people would get involved like people love getting into each other's business <laughs> and and will make it a point to like defend that person um, oh that's good which is which is which is amazing um you know and, and not not just isolated to my neighborhood but yeah but you talk to any like, anyone here like there is a big sense of a pride in the community and pride in the city mm -hmm. and i think a lot of that you know is certainly in a post 9-11 new yeah, york yeah you have a kind of a like they use this phrase like new york tough like that was a tremendously traumatic event for this city of course and i think it put a lot of stuff into perspective in terms of look we just have we. to stick together yeah yeah there's this concept of, of we yeah. and i feel like here i have not I have not been like i never really felt like a new yorker i felt like i'm kind of an expat but having been here in this time and really seeing the community come together to kind of deal with this problem and deal with March and April, which were some of the scariest times the city has ever faced, yeah. um, was amazing. And like I once walked from my car to my door, which was like 10 feet away without my mask on. And someone was like, put your mask on. Someone yelled <laughs> that at me. I was like, I got it. Promise. Yeah, yeah. It's in the car. I'm just, I'm just running into the car. Like people will get into your business about it, but like not in an overly confrontational way that you feel threatened. It's yeah. just like keeping your shit in check because we're all in this together. And I think that that's the biggest problem. You know, it's just like, we've we've isolated ourselves and we're not thinking about the community anymore which yeah. is yeah it's really unfortunate i i got a few questions um sure. from people one of the first questions was uh with regards to um quebec and i guess we could also talk about uh, new york and in the states they are trying to open schools back as you've seen yeah 
Um, what are your thoughts on the idea of opening schools back, uh, you know, with regards to, you know, children, the, the risk to children, the risk to adults, you know, what are your ideas from a medical professional perspective? You know, we're, we're being told that this is potentially something we could do now. So what are your thoughts on that? Again, I think this is something that we don't have a lot of information to really make an informed decision mm. uh, about this at this time. Um, here, for example, in New York, it is there's an opt out. Like everybody can choose to not send their kids, at least in, oh. in my neighborhood. I know this. Okay. So like um, my upstairs neighbors opted to not send their children to the fall semester. They're going to be still learning from home, which I think is a, you know, a great, a great example yeah. uh, to follow. Look, I, in my mind, and I, I, I think that we all want to get back to a sense of normalcy mm. at the beginning. You talked about July and June and the fall of when this is going to be over. Yeah. I, I could say I'm a bit more pessimistic and think that this is going to be somewhere we're dealing with until like 2021. Yeah. You know, um, well, at least my partner, at least. Yeah. My partner's a nurse and told me that until a vaccine comes along, yeah. there's a good chance it's that, like, that we're for sure. No it's not yeah. going to change, you yeah. know, like at least until some point next year, maybe two years, who knows? And I think that, um, obviously we want to, like, we talk about this, um, concept of harm reduction hmm. in terms of, let's say, allowing to have some type of loosening of restrictions. Cause if you really wanted to make sure that this doesn't be a problem, nobody would be leaving their house. We yeah. just have back to original lockdown. That would be it. But at the same time in our society that, that cannot fly. So going back to school, I think it's a super controversial topic. In my mind, I don't think it's something that I'm really ready to sign up for yet because mm -hmm. we just can't make an informed decision on it. We don't understand enough about how this illness is transmitted from kids to adults yeah. uh, based on their age. We also, like over the past couple of months, only recently started seeing some very strange phenomena happening in some small subsets of children yeah, uh, related to COVID like where they get these like, Infl multi-system inflammatory yeah. conditions yeah. which are very rare outside of covid but um that was something that only just appeared who's to say that more things aren't going to change we don't know enough about this right now so in, mm -hmm. my, in my perspective i'm erring more on the side of, of caution i'm being more conservative this is again expert opinion this is by no means like a, a me speaking on behalf of of the entire specialty or other people but that's that's my opinion of how i would let's say if i had children I would probably opt out and just continue dealing with them being around the house yeah. a bit longer, which I can understand is also, you know, very difficult too, for sure. Right. So I think no matter what, if let's say you decide to do that, um, then it's about doing it in the safest way possible, making sure that you don't have any overcrowding, you have appropriate space and, and masking. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's very difficult and I don't think I can give like a right answer. Yeah. Uh, that's fair. And I don't think anyone's going to be able to give one, unfortunately, but I would say, when in doubt, just be as conservative and safe as you can. Uh, I've had a question about antibodies. Um, people are asking about, you know, like the hey. like the flu and the cold. Usually if you you catch it, there's, you know, there's like a window where you've built up antibodies to it. So mm -hmm. your body is usually, you, you're not as susceptible to catching it again right away. How, unfortunately, that does happen. Um People are saying that with COVID, though, uh, it, it's it's looking like people can get it and then catch it pretty soon after again. Um, uh, what what have you heard on that front? Because I actually, you know, I've heard two different things. I've heard 
you know, some people be like the, the idea of a uh, um, immunity rod, whereas like I am now immune, like I got it and I'm yeah. now immune in my community. And then some people were just like, there's no such thing as a community, uh, community, ro- uh, immunity rod with COVID. Yeah. If you catch it, you can potentially get it again and continue to pass it on. So it's, that's another interesting question because I think like some parts of the world were using this concept of an immunity passport, like, mm-hmm. okay, you have antibodies. So now you are able to go to this region or X region. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe they were using it in South America. Um, Again, the fact is, we just don't know enough about these things yet. Uh, my wife has antibodies. Oh. I don't. Okay. Uh, she was never sick. I was never sick. We oh. were together through the height of the epicenter pandemic here in New York. Interesting. Can't explain that. Don't know. Yeah. Um, but the problem is, you know, with the antibody tests, are they A, picking up a, a coronavirus that is this coronavirus antibody oh. because you know there are other existing coronaviruses that yes. people may have been exposed to yeah. so is this a very specific antibody number one number two you know the longevity of these antibodies and your immunity is also we just it has not been around long enough for us to really say mm. uh, a lot of line of thinking is they compare it to other types of um, let's say like SARS that occurred in Toronto or uh, MERS, which was uh, another type of respiratory illness that originated in the Middle East. East. Yeah. They showed high instances of immunity at the beginning and then they, that that started to wane, similar to what you're talking about with with uh, the flu or influenza. But one thing that is, you know, that we that we do understand is we're seeing very few people who are being reinfected. In fact, I would say that we're seeing almost none who oh, are being okay. reinfected okay. with COVID, which is reassuring. Mm-hmm. Because that means that there's some semblance of immunity present. Yeah. Um, however, do we understand enough to really start hanging our hat on? You're immune. You can now go, let's say, on a plane. You can do this. Can we make decisions based on someone's immunity or their antibodies? Presently, I would say no. Hmm. We still need to learn a lot more about it. And I think as vaccine development continues, we're going to we're going to start to really start to understand a bit more in terms of how this works. Um, so like they're a nice kind of magical idea in terms of like, you see that you say, if you got the test and you see, Oh, I have antibodies. That's great. Um, in Canada, it's quite difficult to get that test, but here in, yeah. in New York, you can go to like any CVS and get your antibodies tested. Oh, wow. Um, okay. it's, it's very, very easy to get them. Um, we just, you just don't really can't make many decisions based on that antibody, right. uh, positivity or not for at least for the moment. Okay. Uh, another question that came up was, um, well, the person sent it as a joking question. They essentially okay. wrote, uh, uh, "Are we all going to die?" Uh, but uh, but then followed. I feel it like up. I've heard this <laughs> question a lot lately. But then they they followed okay. it. They, they, there's kind of like a follow up of more like um, they made the joke in the in the sense that because COVID has shut down m- most economic hubs. Yeah. There's a sense of urgency to develop a vaccine. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are concerned about being the first ones to take the vaccine. So sure. I think the the question was also in line with how do we convince people that the vaccine is safe? Cuz even myself, I I you know my my best friend and I, oh, well, you know my best friend Mobs. Um yes. him and I regularly have talked about the fact that through COVID we will both be seen as anti-vaxxers because neither of us wants to get the vaccine first round. Okay. Because we're, we're... Well, 
You you can be happy that it'll be me that's gonna get the first round. So well, I'll true. be medical professionals be will probably lit, be. I'll be the litmus test. <laughs> yeah. You know, without a choice. So <laughs> yeah. true. To, to assuage your anxiety, if you start seeing a lot of doctors and nurses uh, unexpectedly dying oh, because no, of the vaccine, then, then then you'll know. <laughs> I get, yeah, okay. you know, funny enough, I didn't really think about that's true. But I guess medical professionals frontline would be the first yeah. places that they would introduce vaccines. So that's the thing to remember, right? This is like once the vaccine, let's say someone settles on this is it. This is the one that we're going to go with. Mm. Um, that vaccine will have gone through an immeasurable, despite it being fast. Yeah. An immeasurable amount of research and trials and testing, both in animal models and in human models. Mm. Okay. Um, to ensure that it's safe to use yeah thereafter it's not going to be given out quick like it's going to take a while to distribute this vaccination and there's going to be kind of like subsets of people who are going to be prioritized so for sure you're going to be prioritizing like vulnerable populations people who have let's say like uh, or immune suppressed who have cancer on chemotherapy who have significant chronic disease healthcare workers are going to be prioritized yeah. people who are on the front line people who are let's say like uh, postal service officers, people that work in our grocery stores. There's going to be kind of like subsets or waves of how this is going to be distributed. Mm. Um, so to get down to someone, let's say, who is like just John Q. Public, yeah. like general population, it may take a number of months. So for oh, someone wow. to be worried about, is this vaccine dangerous? You know, as, as, as messed up as that is, there's going to be a lot of other people who are going to be getting it before them, almost certainly. Yeah. And a lot of those people, you know, really the benefit know. is going to outweigh the risk. And that's the thing. Hmm. Like, if, if you are a cancer patient who is immune suppressed, and this is something that will dictate whether or not you can be living your life normally, I think a lot of those people are going to choose to take that. Yeah. Myself, someone who puts my who puts themselves at risk when they go and see a patient when they're dealing with a case that could be COVID. I would probably not be allowed to work if I would had yeah. taken that vaccination. Yeah. Right. So, I think one thing that people can find solace in is that. There are many steps to this, both at a research level and then at an implementation level that we have to go through before you end up getting the vaccine um, as someone, let's say, who doesn't fall into one of these categories. So could it be, could it have side effects? For sure. Will it be something that will be, let's say, like fatal or deadly? I would say the likelihood is extremely, extremely low. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we, time is really what will tell. And yeah. who's to say anything that we're doing now in 20 years couldn't have deleterious consequences, you know? And I think that it's all about weighing the risk benefit. And at that time, I think you're going to have enough people who will have made that informed decision and seen that the benefit was greater than the risk. And you'll be able to compare it to how they dealt with it. You can also ask me at that time to see, yeah, yeah. To see if, I'll bring you back if so I we still can talk have about... a pulse. <laughs> just a check-in. You're still alive? Yeah. Like, yep. Yep. Still <laughs> Could be uh, a segment. Yes, definitely. Every week, it's just like, all right, we're talking with Doctor Jr. Still Are alive. you still alive? <laughs> um, I had another question. That this sure. one was with regards to masks. Um, someone was asking quite earnestly, which I did never thought I would see this person ask this question. Um, is it possible for a mask? Uh, well, I should say. Because I asked the person to clarify, is it possible sure. for a surgical mask, the 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 blue or pink or yellow mask yeah. that are often handed out at hospitals, yeah. is it possible for that one to uh, significantly reduce someone's ability to breathe? So, 
I would say reasons, let's say, to not wear a mask are few and far between. Okay. Um, I would say in terms of, let's say, not being able to breathe, I would say almost there's almost no instances when that would be the case. Mm. Uh, unless, let's say, you had like a gross deformity of your mouth, your nose, of your face that mm. would be like any type of blockage at all would then require you to be needing oxygen. Mm. So there's there's not many instances I can even think of that a normal person or someone, let's say, who even has a respiratory illness, like I have asthma yeah. and I'm wearing the mask all the time. Yeah. Um, the Quebec government recently came out with some examples of exemptions from mask wearing, medical reasons. Oh, um, you know, a lot of people have been presenting or to clinics at seeking exemptions for this. And again, there are few and far between, one of which is like a facial, like a, a gross facial deformity. Mm -hmm. When I say gross, I don't mean disgusting. I mean, no, I yeah. mean an obvious yeah, facial yeah, yeah. <laughs> part of my verbiage there. Um, so an obvious facial deformity that would render a mask them not physically being able to breathe. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty exceptional circumstance. Other instance, another instance that currently that they are using is, um, let's say children who are, um, have, are on the spectrum for autism. So let's say some children who may not be able to cope from a mental health perspective of wearing a mask yeah. um, because it causes significant, let's say, distress. Yeah. Um, that would be another example. I won't go through the entire list, but there is a list out there okay. from the Quebec government. Um, but I would say to answer their question, um, there are almost no instances where this is going to prevent you from being able to breathe, where this is going to be causing your oxygen to drop or your carbon dioxide to go up. Yeah. It is... It can certainly cause uh, you to break out, get some acne, but it be pulling on your ears can certainly cause a, a headache. Yeah. But I assure you that headache that you may be getting is not because of an oxygen related issue. It's just because that thing is pulling on your ears or on your head. So I would say I would not worry at all from a breathing standpoint of this. Okay. Uh, another one that I had was, uh, this isn't as much a question, but I, I had asked you if you had a chance. Shout out to our friend, well, my friend, um, Vincent Stephen Ong, who did a yeah. video uh, yesterday. Uh, he did it on his personal page in which he took a which he, and he's been looking at this since him and I spoke. If you guys go back, there's a not a journalist episode with Vincent and myself. He was actually the first person that introduced me to the information with regards to Taiwan. And he's been following some of this stuff very closely. Um, he did a video last night talking about uh, COVID and the spread and the model, uh, not the model, but the, like the, the graph of the different um, stats that you you might look at to make certain decisions. Uh, for example, you know one of the things that he was saying in his video was the reason that they may be trying to open things up more is because there's not necessarily because of the death versus um, infection ratio, but more the ICU bed uh, situation. Because he was saying he noticed that the graph that in relation to the ICU beds was. Uh, was co coincided with the announcements of uh, larger numbers of people being allowed to go out because then so on and so forth. Uh, you also watched the video, if I'm not mistaken. I did, uh, yeah, yeah. I watched it today. Yeah, 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 It was really well done. Yeah, yeah. So shout out to Vincent. Um, one of the things that you and I had discussed is one of the things that uh, from that video, the, the, the trying to get to zero. Um, yes. So, and when we say zero, he's Vincent was referring to zero cases, um in the in the in quebec in the province itself yeah. um and i don't think he meant zero as in what you were referring to earlier which i didn't even realize was a thing that could happen but the uh the percentage you because it was 0.94 percent of the people that were tested um 
were today, yeah, yeah, in New York State were positive. Yeah. So, uh, which which brings up a whole other point, and, and actually kind of makes me think of two things: should the goal be zero infections completely, or zero, uh, or a percentage lower than zero overall? So, what I would say is the the, the ability to get to zero infections completely. There's so many variables that are going to yeah. dictate if that's going to be possible, right? Like the places that have successfully done that at a time or another often are island nations, yeah, right? Because it's very easy to control people leaving or coming out because yeah. really the only ways to get in are by plane or by boat. Yeah. Um, you know, like, for example, we share a land border, like Canada and U.S. share an enormous, the largest, like unprotected, yeah. like land border in the world. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and to speak from my experience, when I've crossed the border during COVID, I'm not getting any questions about symptoms. I'm not getting any questions about anything to the virus, Really, just other things that are annoying and the typical border questions, but nothing about that. Nothing about the things that I would be happy to answer questions about, um, which is unfortunate. And so like, there's a lot of, like, no matter what you were talking about before, if everyone follows the rules, and this includes people, let's say, who are implementing the rules. Yeah. Because just because you have a tool and you're expected to ask a question doesn't mean that's going to be perfectly applied, right? So um, in, an, in our situation, I think that getting to zero cases is going to be extremely difficult. That's oh. going to be, that's not something that I think is achievable in the, in the, in the near, like in the near future. That's going to, again, be vaccine is, is here. Vaccine is widely distributed. And even that's still probably going to trickle down to get to absolute zero of nothing. Um, now, to speak to zero percent, um, I mean, I mentioned earlier the WHO likes to keep a, a rate of two to five percent mm. uh, of positivity rates to mitigate risk. That's again the idea that unless you keep everything on lockdown in perpetuity, because mm-hmm. that that will get you to zero. Yeah, if people aren't allowed to leave their homes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And don't leave their homes, you know, like that, that will eventually get you to zero. However, that, that draconian type of approach will not fly in most places in North America. Yeah. Um, you know, if someone doesn't want to wear a mask, they're not going to like being told that they can't leave their apartment, right? Or having a GPS tracker on their phone and getting uh, no- knocks on their door to check in if they're still home to make sure they didn't just leave their phone inside and left the house, <laughs> which is what some, some parts of the world do. Yeah. Um, you know, we're not really amenable to that in North America. So the the way that people are looking at it now is you're having kind of like a, a sort of like a, a give and take, like a tightrope situation where you're having laxity of some um, of some of the restrictions, while ideally increasing testing capacity um, to have a sense of what the infection is doing as you're relaxing some of these restrictions as opposed to being an all or nothing lockdown until zero and then open up. Yeah. Which is realistically, I don't think from a socio-political cultural perspective is, is possible in Canada or, or the States. So what we're going to be seeing is, yeah, things are imposed, things are taken away as things are taken away. There's no, there's no vaccine right now. Right. So you're naturally going to be seeing the infections are almost certainly going to go up yeah. because you're relaxing restrictions. If people are allowed to eat uh, indoors, go to a bar, you're in, you're putting yourself in a scenario, whether you like it or not, that you're at risk for transmitting or getting the the virus. That's just the way it is. And people are accepting that because the the numbers are lower and that's fine. The difference now between now and at the beginning is that now places have set up an infrastructure to deal with 
like new infections. Mm. In March and April, we were being blindsided without having any sense of how to test, where to test, how to trace people. That's why our rates were so high. Yeah. Now, if you're testing in Quebec about like 15,000 a day, in uh, New York now between like 50 to 70,000 a day, depending on the day, as opposed to April where it was 10,000 or in Quebec was 4,000, that's a significant, yeah. significant yeah. number, right? So you even increase your testing capacity. Ideally, as you relax restrictions, you wanna be testing more and more aggressively so that the ones that slip through, which are going to slip through, you know where they are and then they can be isolated and in quarantine. Um, but again, this comes back to what I was saying before. Our test isn't perfect. Yeah. Results take time. It's not quick. If you had a test that could be done like quickly, results back fast and was cheap, and you could do it again and again, testing, repeat testing people, hey, that would be the way to handle this. Yeah. And we could get back to some sense of normalcy while waiting for the vaccine. The fact is there's so many variables at play here, especially in North America. Um, it's so, like, you just think of, let's say, interstate travel in the states there were no roadblocks put up certainly like flights there was like non-essential travel mandates but no one could stop someone from driving from new york to california well, and there are an, an, an infinitesimal number of ways to get there you yeah. could have touched any state you wanted to you know yeah. and so long as that's in place look the number is not going to go down to zero and it's un, it's unfortunate but i think what one thing that your buddy did allude to was having Local approaches is mm. the most important thing because there's no one size fits all way of looking at this. Yeah. Like the, the World Health Organization touts that number two to 5% um, at, to mitigate risk. That may not be appropriate for some places who aren't able to test well. Let's say if you're in Botswana or you're in South, some place in South Africa or yeah. Zaire where testing capacity is more difficult or their infrastructure is less. It's certainly that may not be a realistic number. They're they're they may need a different approach, as you would, let's say, in Quebec, as you would in England, as you would in Iceland or Taiwan. So one size fits all is not going to work. Yeah. And I think it's important to remember, like again, like the the geopolitical social situations that each nation and community is is in is going to make a big difference in terms of how this can be can be handled. So. To get it to zero worldwide is going to almost certainly have to wait for a vaccine. In some places, it certainly will be possible. The community I work in is at zero. Oh, great. But it's very easy to get that to zero, you yeah, know, as opposed, let's say, Montreal or to New York State. But I think that the most important thing is that the thing that Quebec and New York both have in common is they weathered a very difficult storm and are in a place to succeed should things get worse again and things will increase like they have to like yeah. that's just the, that's just the definition as we relax restrictions you're going to have more infections but if you're able to handle that with an appropriate infrastructure you're going to be able to deal with it mm -hmm. this is why we're seeing these explosions in other parts of the states because they never really had a first wave like we did yeah Quebec and New York were two of the hardest hit places in North America and then you have places like Texas and Florida which were, were which were untouched but still imposed restrictions and they felt they were doing a great job. Like, Hey, look at us. We're keeping down the infection. But yeah. realistically, the infection wasn't really what's they, really there yeah. or just, it wasn't, they hadn't really been hit yet. And then they laxed everything. They swung the pendulum too far in the other direction and now they're being obliterated. Yeah. So they never really had the opportunity to even set up that infrastructure. And, you know, it's no secret that these places that are getting hit, 
you know, don't pay as much taxes and uh, are particularly skewing of a more political mindset and like smaller government, uh, more private enterprise. And it's unfortunate, but public health is not a private enterprise. Public health is a publicly funded uh, wing of healthcare system in most instances. And it's so weird that it's it's what you're seeing. That something like health, like your nation's health is being politicized. I find that to be one of the the weirdest things I've ever seen. For you coming from Canada, what's it like to see the American system sometimes with regards to not not necessarily like, you know, having to pay for stuff, but just the yeah. politics in healthcare seems weird to me. I mean, again, I'm an outsider, so obviously it's going to look weird because I'm not used to the system, but you're there, so oh, you see sure. it. Um, you know, I think it's interesting because I feel like for sure I think the biggest problem here is that you're trying to lump an entire, like you're trying to lump so many different types of people and by different people, I mean different States into yeah. one place and call this a country, which is in my mind, impossible yeah. to, to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How can, to be able to compare like Arizona to Vermont, to Montana, to yeah. Florida, to California, California, to New York. Yeah how are how are these places similar in my mind it's like if you were to say so the country of europe yeah you know like you have russia and italy portugal and ireland like these are all the same in the same country um obviously not to that extent but just thinking of it that way um it's hard i feel bad for the people that have been demonized that live here um simply because of who is the elected leader and because of some places that choose to ignore science and politicize this. Yeah. And, you know, I remember years ago, I was very much like, you know, like uh, America, right? Like it was an easy target to make fun of for some things. Mm -hmm. But now when you're here, like in the differences between New York and Canada, like from like a sociopolitical type of worldview, especially Montreal and New York are are very minimal, Mm -hmm. you know, like I feel this was not a stark difference going from there to here. Mm -hmm. And it's unfortunate that a lot of people here who are working their asses off to help not only the people here, but people all over the world with developments of science and advancements and research um, are very quickly like, uh, not necessarily demonized, but just like you made fun of, you know, and it's, uh, it's, it's unfortunate from that perspective that, you have basically 50% of this country that is trying to really make a difference and make things better. Um, here, speaking to like what differences I see, I don't see that many in, in New York. People here really take this seriously. Hmm. And I think that's as evident as to how far the state has come and the city has come since March and April when this yes. was looking like this was in dire straits. And I think that's a te- that speaks to you know the resilience and the strength of this place. And I don't know a lot of other places that would have been able to weather that storm and get it under control as well as, uh, as well as they did mm-hmm. and who are open to sharing that knowledge with other people. Like we're giving, we're sending ventilators to Georgia. We're sending uh, healthcare workers to Florida to help. Like oh, wow. we're, we're distributing our resources that are now available. Yeah. That have been made available because we're able uh, to ha- to handle what's going on now because we've weathered that storm. Um, so yeah, no, it, 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 I thought it would be a lot more different, um, coming here, but I'm fortunate that I'm in, 
in a state that is very similar to like the value system that I was raising in Montreal. Yeah. If I was in another state, then that would probably be a very different situation. Yeah. If yeah. I was in, uh, like I have friends that live in Nashville who are a blue city and a red state or live in Austin, blue city and a red state. Very, very different. Yeah. You know, as opposed to New York, especially in the city um, where most people are kind of on the same page in terms of what they want to get out of life and their sense of community and their value system. So, well, it's, dude, uh, it's interesting. <laughs> uh, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me. No problem. Um, My pleasure. We we discussed a lot. I really appreciate it. There's a lot of things that uh, even I'm I feel very much informed and and I'm you know I feel like I I feel a little more comfortable, especially the vaccine thing. What you said about the vaccine thing really really helped ease me ease my mind quite a bit because I really did have genuine concerns about when the vaccine comes. I I was not going to feel comfortable. Um, but the way you explained yeah. it, it's true. It makes sense that there would be waves, there would be a rollout, there would be people who would be getting it first. You know, I work in, uh, you know, uh, th- like a, the music industry essentially. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I, you know, I no longer work at a hospital, so I'm not frontline. I'm not, you know, any of those things. And yeah, so, uh, you know, I'm definitely not going to be one of the first people they're going to test it on. Uh, (laughs) um, I also still, I'm still slightly concerned. My partner does work at the hospital. My mother does work at the hospital. So hopefully, you know, they have come up with uh, something safer, but yeah. What, what I would say just like as a parting remark for like anyone that's anxious about this, Mm. um, you know, like most things in life, like let's say flying on a plane, Yeah, we see things in film and movie popular culture where like a plane crash happens and it's like this big catastrophic event. It obviously is a catastrophic event, of course, yeah. but it's very rarely an all of a sudden thing that's going to happen. that's going to cause a plane to drop. Similarly in let's say the way that we go for in the next couple months, it's unlikely that let's say from the vaccine perspective that you're going to have an all of a sudden type of reaction that's going to cause significant harm to people. Things, decisions are going to be taken in a measured way things are going to be moving slowly mm-hmm. and it's not going to be like an all or nothing type of reaction. We mentioned before, like how like a Sith doesn't deal in absolutes. Yeah. It's important to, for us, like everyone to reflect on that. Whenever you see something that makes you stressed or makes you anxious, take a second to think about the opposite side of what your fear is or what your stress is, because mm-hmm we're being bombarded with stuff right now. And just as soon as you're going to see something that will make you stress, you could see something that will make you reassured. So we're all kind of knee jerking right now, having these knee jerk reactions. And I think it's just to take a step back the moment that you're feeling one of these extreme emotions or either from something that you saw or read and try and contextualize it. And uh, it's rare that it's going to be like a punch in the face. Things, things move very slowly. So yeah, there you go, folks. You heard it. Uh, maybe try some CBD oil. Keep people keep telling me to try it, but I don't think I need it because I'm already so relaxed ninety <laughs> percent of the time. Yeah, I, I like people keep like recommending stuff like that to me, and I'm just like, guys, do you, you do realize I the first time I've ever felt the physical um, manifestation of anxiety was this April, and I'm 37, okay. and that's the first time I've ever felt it. Wow. And, and I, I have friends who are just like, I felt the first time when I was six. So, you know, yeah. it goes to show like how where I am with stuff. I And, and I, di- I felt it because I was at the grocery store and, and I didn't even realize what it was. I came home and I 
took a deep breath and I was just like, oh, that was weird. What was that? And my partner was just like, well, what were you thinking of? I was just, I, I was like, oh, I was thinking there's a lot of people in the grocery store right now. She's just <laughs> like, yeah, I think your body was having a physical reaction to anxiety. I was just like, is For that sure. what you guys were feeling like? <laughs> I've never felt that. So I was like, what? This is what you guys deal with regularly? How do you do it? Yeah. Yeah. It sucks. Anxiety oh, yeah. is the worst. Yeah, man. So count yourself lucky that I have... only discovered it recently. I know. As opposed to living with it since you were a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So, you know, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, I'll get you back another time soon to talk about more yeah. stuff. Uh, I, I, I realize you're slightly a geek. Uh, seeing the Star Wars, I also have my droid shirt on, uh, which is a shout out to the Beatles and the droids from Star Wars franchise. Um, so we'll definitely have to just geek out one time. Uh, sure, man. I'm into it. Dope. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, once again, thank you very much, Dr. Justin Ross. Thanks, bud. Take care, everybody. And that's another edition of Not a Journalist with Brian Holiday. You guys can find more episodes on brianholiday.com. That's B-R-I-A-N-H-O-L-I-D-A-E. Also, follow me on all social media platforms at Brian Holiday. If you guys want to support me, make sure to check out my coffee page. That's ko-fi.com slash Holiday. And if you have something to say, you can leave a message at anchor.fm slash not-a-journalist slash message and i'll add it to the next episode thanks for tuning in everyone